Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host. Today we have a couple of great guests. We have Lloyd Capuccio of the Kosher Dosher, and we have Kevin Liddell of Sous Vide Food and Fun. We're going to talk about some advanced sous vide concepts. All right, I'll be right back with Lloyd and Kevin. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling. Hey all, this is Darren and I want to take a minute to talk to you about Masterclass. I just signed up for Masterclass and I can tell you what, it's well worth it. Masterclass is where you can learn how to cook from Gordon Ramsay, you can learn how to sous vide from Thomas Keller, you can learn how to make Texas barbecue from Aaron Franklin himself. All these classes are available on Masterclass, plus many more. Masterclass has great video content, interactive assignments, social interaction with the Masterclass community, all for just one fee. You can either buy each individual class for $90 each, or you can sign up for the annual pass, which gives you access to all their classes for just $180. And that's what I signed up for. Check it out, guys. Masterclass has some of the best online training you can find. Check it out, guys, in the link below. Masterclass, amazing. Now on to the show. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm your host. And today we got a couple of great guests. They've both been on the podcast before. They're both very, very knowledgeable in sous vide. Uh, one of them actually just came back from CREA training. I think he just took two uh, CREA training courses. So he's got that all fresh in his mind. I want to welcome first Lloyd Capuccio and then Kevin Liddell. Kevin Little, I'm sorry, Little, right? That's how it's pronounced in the in the old country. <laughs> all right. All right, Lloyd. Lloyd, awesome. give us a brief history of you again real quick. Okay, name is Lloyd Capiccio. Uh, I'm from Seattle, Washington. I'm a retired air traffic controller, and I just love food. You love food. And Kevin? Yeah, I'm from uh, Little. northern central Pennsylvania. Uh, and right now I'm actually looking to build a business uh, to actually teach sous vide and that sort of thing. Uh, and like Lloyd says, I like, the, I like food too. <laughs> I love food. I love to keep cook and eat and everything. So <clears throat> yeah, we all got that in common. And, um, I think, you know, one of the things that drives people like us is we take these things that we try to break them down and understand them more than just a normal person would, you know, the normal person is good at just, you know, throwing a hamburger on a grill and not caring how, how it gets cooked. You know, we kind of like to break this stuff down. So, um, that's why this is going to be the advanced sous vide, uh, edition because some of the stuff that you both have worked on is considered advanced, um, practices and principles and concepts that, um, the, the person who's just getting into it, wouldn't really, it would go over their head too much. And I did a episode last week that, uh, with Jason Logsdon, a basic sous vide, uh, episodes kind of going over stuff that a, a novice would want to know going out, you know, uh, learning from the beginning. But we want to talk about some of this stuff that we talk about all the time on the Facebook group and that kind of, uh, gets a little di bit deeper into what sous vide can do. So, uh, I want to start out um, with some of that stuff. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about too can it can be affected, you know, can 
the novice can understand and use as well. But when we start getting into some of the other stuff, we kind of explain why things are the way they are or why they work or why they don't work. So the first thing I want to talk about is the best way to season and why. So let's start with Lloyd. What's the best way to season and why? Well, first I'll say it's a matter of preference, whether you season or not. If you like it, hey, it's okay with me, as long as you, you don't piss off your guests. Well, the advantage is, first, when I do season, it always contains salt. The other stuff is just mostly a surface treatment. I'm okay with that. I use it very, very often. Uh, the advantage of salt, it denatures the protein strands, uh, increases moisture retention, um, and when you denature the protein strands, there's less, less squeezing occurs, so less moisture is lost. And when you season, right, it kind of brings out the amino acids to the surface. So it helps with the, the searing, the Maillard. So I'm all yeah, for it. I, and I think that's one of the things that people, and they don't need to know this stuff, but some people like us, we want to know why. You know, what does salt do that's different than any other, you know, seasoning or spice that we use? And why, what does it do to the meat when it's used? It's not just that it makes it salty, which is, it does do that. And that's important. But it also does some other things because it interacts with the proteins differently than the other spices do. But like you said, it changes the uh, the structure of it pretty much. So, all right, Kevin, what do you like before or after sous vide? I mean, that's one of the things that comes up a lot in some of the groups is, you know, do I season before I put it in the bag? Do I season it after, I, you know, before I sear it, after out of the bag? Um, why and why, why, which one and why? Well, I tend to do, both. I, I will season after and sometimes I'll season before and it depends on what I'm, what the application is. Uh, if I'm, if I'm doing something for a long time uh, and I want to have some more moisture retention than I would normally have, I'll do a dry brine. I'll uh, measure out between one and 2% salt by weight for the meat, apply that to the meat, bag it, vacuum seal it and let it sit for a day or two in the fridge before I cook it. And then I'll cook it, and I won't season that after I take it out of the bag and sear it. Um, it also depends, you know, if, if I'm getting something that's going to put a lot of moisture on, if I season that beforehand with and, – and when I'm when I'm like Lloyd, when I'm talking about seasoning, I basically mean salt. Uh, it's the only rock we eat, and it's a lovely rock. Um, but I'll, I'll season – you know, if, if I season something beforehand, I, I will – it gets hard to tell how much seasoning you lose into the purge in the bag. So you might have to season afterwards because you've lost a certain percentage of that salt into the liquid. And uh, so for stuff, if I'm doing a ribeye, uh, I'll, I'll often with steaks not season beforehand because I'm not going to let it sit for a few days. I'm going to cook it and eat it and I'll season it right before I sear it. And that's it. Yeah. And, and like Lloyd said too, it all's personal preference. I mean, I never get on anybody. They can do it however they want to with whatever the best results that they find. I you know, personally, I'll season a little bit before and a little bit after, because I know I'm going to lose some in the purge, but I know that, you know, whatever I put on before the sous vide is going to season the purge and it's also going to coat the meat and still have some on there. So well, can I interject this for a moment? Yeah. I'll do with beef. <laughs> specifically <laughs> is I'm really precise. I'm very precise. I kind of micromanage my proteins. Uh, if you have me, uh, I'll use 0.60% salt and I like fish salt 1%. So 
I never have to re-season with salt because it's perfect for what I like. You mean like a higher percentage. Uh, I'll pepper, garlic, whatever else I want afterwards. But mostly it's just salt. But it's, the, the salt percentage is so precise, I never have to re-season with salt. This was now, perfect. since you brought that up, how do you get the salt out of that fish? I mean, do they just squeeze the salt out of the fish? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> fish salt. Let's explain what fish salt is because this, this came up well, in one of the other groups the other day, and I think they asked you what exactly is fish salt. You, make fun, right? yeah. you, stop on the, you stop on the grapes, you stop on the anchovies. No, no. It's basically, uh, it's, it's, it's like how they make, um, they take anchovies and they ferment them in a barrel with a lot of salt. It takes a couple of so I've read. Yeah, and it's it's pretty much you know the fish sauce that you can buy in the Asian markets. And uh, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, it's actually uh, someone had asked that recently, and I was I thought it was actually fish salt added or fish sauce added to salt, but it's actually the salt left over in the casks after the fermentation. So once they drain all the liquid out of the barrels, they take all that salt and take that out, and that's what they sell as fish salt. And there's another process that goes in between that too. Um, there is the, the types of barrels they use too. Yeah, red that's that, Redbow specifically. Yeah, that's that's very interesting stuff. And you know, I tried um, I tried the fish sauce not too long ago for the first time, and it it does kind of stink, but it does. Uh, you know, I did the uh, the fish sauce aging, faux aging with it, uh, and I actually followed one of your recipes, Lloyd, because mm-hmm. your your blog is amazing with that kind of stuff, and um, and that. Um, really uh amazed me what it could do in such a short time but it does stink when you first take it out of the bottle oh, it's it disgusting it's disgusting <laughs> uh, i did contrast uh red boat is my favorite uh manufacturer of fish sauce and i contrasted uh five of their brands from a 50 dollar bottle down to a 25 dollar bottle and i actually have it on my blog and and i i have a favorite but fish salt is the easiest to apply yeah, so, it, yeah. you don't have to get gloves and everything because you don't want to get that stuff on your hands, I found out, because it'll no. stay on your hands for a long time. <laughs> All right, let's go down to the next question, and this one comes up a lot. And I know, Lloyd, you've done a lot of uh, experiments and stuff and you a lot of research on this. Butter or oil in the sous vide bag when you're cooking your proteins? Let's Why Kevin, not? Kevin's the science guy. Let's, let's talk to Kevin first about butter in the bag, and I'll, I'll give my 17 cents. Well, this is just, this is my opinion based upon science. Um, I don't really have any, I can't, I don't have any studies that I can show you that prove what I'm about to say. Uh, But basically what we can taste, uh, what we consider flavors are soluble in three things, alcohol, water, and fat. Um, A lot of people do do the, you know, butter in a bag try it without it and they often the majority of the people the vast majority prefer a steak that doesn't have any fat added in the bag and i the only thing i can think of so if you're adding butter you're adding two out of the three things that are flavor compounds are soluble in. you're adding water and you're adding fat lipids uh People say when they have a lot of butter or a lot of oil in a bag and they cook a steak, it comes out and the the steak just doesn't have any flavor anymore compared to one they did, if they did one next to it as a comparison or did one the other day. Uh, And I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost positive. The the reason is the fats are absorbing some of the flavor molecules 
uh, some of the flavor compounds that are coming and, and draining them out of the meat. So now you have, you know, butter that tastes like meat, but meat that doesn't taste as much as meat than it used to or than it would. Yes. Now, now, now that's for beef, veal, chicken, stuff like that. But what about fish and uh, seafood? Uh, those are shorter cooking times. And so there isn't as much time to have the flavor compounds get drawn out by the butter. And plus, we're usually using that butter with the fish as well. Uh, you know, a lot of people will pour it on a steak, you know, stuff after the steak. Fish, I mean, I, I rarely cook fish over 45 minutes. It's usually half an hour or so. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing I want people to understand is because they'll say, well, you know, if you cook a steak in a pan and you put butter on it while you're searing it, you know, isn't that the same thing? And it's not because you're not, you know, in a sous vide, you're cooking it in a bag for a longer period of time. And that's where the, the difference is. It's not just a quick sear where you're just coating the, you know, the surface of the meat. You're actually putting it in there and that the time gives the uh, fat that you put in there to time to pull the flavor lipids out, like you said. So, um, yeah, and the, uh, the comparison the comparison I've used with Lloyd is think about, uh, and it's a really good comparison because most everyone's done it. Think about taking chicken stock. So I, I buy chicken leg quarters because they're cheap, and I'll buy them, you know, fifteen pounds at a time and put them in the pressure cooker and make chicken stock, and then I have chicken stock for five months. Um, but if you if you do that. Now the water tastes really good. So you put chicken in and water. The water tastes like nothing. The chicken tastes like chicken, but it's not cooked, so you're not going to try it. But after you're done cooking it, now the water tastes like chicken. The chicken doesn't taste like anything. So all the flavor's gone it's out black. of that chicken into the water. So the same thing's happening with the and, steak. And I'll add on to what Kevin was saying. Now, I actually broke down what what's a butter comprised of, and I looked it up. It's triglycerides, triester which is glycerol, which is alcohol. What does alcohol do to food? What does water and alcohol do to food? It kind of dehydrates it, extracts all the flavor. So based on science, the alcohol and the water basically take all the flavor out of the protein. You love with nothing. Now, let, let me give you this uh, one caveat. If you like it, keep doing it. I won't judge you for it, but I probably won't eat your steak. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and anything we say on here, and that's I, I, even on the group, I tell people, you can cook any way you want to. I'm going to tell you, just like Kevin said, I'm going to use science where I get my opinions from. And personally, when I cook stuff, I'll look at it and go, does this taste better? And then mm -hmm. I'll also put principles behind it. And, um, you know, it's like people today, somebody's like, you know, asking, should I smoke before I put it in the sous vide or smoke after the sous vide? And that's a big one too. People are, oh, I got to smoke it before because the smoke penetrates deep. And it's like, okay, I can, I can, I can, you know, not going to argue with you about something like that, you know, but here's, here's why, you know. It's also important, I think, to have kind of a, a blind taste. So when I have guests over, my wife or my kids, they don't know my cooking techniques or my methods. They just know, does it taste good or does it, does it taste bad? So they don't know if I put butter in the bag or not. So how does this right. taste? I like it. I don't like it. And why and, don't you like it? Most guests, you know, aren't going to be rude. And they're going to say, oh, I love it. It's the best barbecue I ever had. They're going to taste oh, like a shoe. Friends, but, they, but they know why I'm asking the question. I invite them over for a, a taste test. So right. I tell them, be, be brutally honest with me. Does it taste like crap or is it good? Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's move along here. This is along the same line, and we see this all all the time, and I think we had a conversation about this the other day, Lloyd. Good. 
fresh herbs in the bag. Should I use fresh herbs in the bag? Uh, my opinion is what you want to do. But overall, I would say no. Uh, placing herbs directly on the protein is not the best method to infuse protein with extra flavor. Uh, when you take herbs and you press them up against the protein, most likely you'll have an undesirable, robust, intense flavor that is isolated right to the spot where you place the herb on. The, 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 the flavors that are extracted from the herb onto the meat, it perfer- perfumes it a little bit, right? But overall, that one spot has a very harsh flavor. It's like putting a whole clove of garlic in the bag, right? That one spot on the protein will have a robust flavor, but the rest of the meat will not, will not have any, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a flavor. What you can do, alternatively, is you could grind the herbs up with salt and apply them directly to the protein. That way, it'll perfume the entire meat. Now, perfume meaning it hasn't penetrated the meat, but it will perfume it. Uh, Thomas Keller's sous vide chefs, one of the things they do, uh, and I've tried it, and it works very, very well, is you get a plastic uh, sachet. Plastic wrap, fold it over, herbs in the middle, poke some holes through it, put that inside the bag. That way, no herbs are directly touching the protein. And then uh, as the meat cooks, the the proteins uh, release moisture, juices, they interact with the herbs and it perfumes the meat. Yeah, it makes like a soup, and that's why I use yeah. if I'm going to if I'm going to season, I use dried herbs and you know ground problem. ground rosemary, you know ground thyme that's dried uh, yeah. because it's going to season the purge and and the outside of the of the yes. protein. I see people put slices of onions on stuff, yeah, yeah, you know, in the back, and it's like, how does that even make sense? You know, you're all you're going to do is have that onion like right on that one spot. Or lemon, it, slices of lemon across right. the top of the fish. Yeah. It's, it may look cool, but it's not affecting, you know, put lemon juice in. <laughs> it's going to be a, a lot better idea than, you know, putting or even lemon zest and mix it in with some dried stuff. But, lemon zest would be better. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what about you, Kevin? We don't want to hog this one. Oh, no. Uh, I really don't, I don't put herbs in at all. Fresh herbs. Uh, I tried it, played around with it, and it was just an expensive way of throwing herbs away. I've never had the <laughs> situation where, uh, I mean, I've, I've taken big bunches of rosemary, put them in on a steak, and uh, cooked it, and I could not taste any rosemary. Uh, I couldn't taste it on the spot where it was. I couldn't, there was no f- smell coming out of the bag, nothing. I had nothing that smelled or tasted like rosemary. Um Traditionally, I've always cooked, especially with with fresh herbs. Uh, you know, if you with this method of cooking, you're cooking for a relatively long time usually, uh, and I think it just murders the herbs. Uh, fresh rosemary, you know, you cut some, take some fresh rosemary leaves and squish them between your fingers. That smells like a pine tree, and I mean, it hits you full force. Pull that stuff out of the bag and squish it between your fingers and try smelling that. You won't smell anything. Uh, I don't get any flavor or any aroma out of the fresh herbs. I played around with it, and I just decided it's not something I'm going to spend money on because I don't see any benefit to it. Yeah, and it's a lot different than searing it in butter when you're searing a steak. You know, people yes. do that. I mean, chefs do that all the time because you're you're extracting the flavor out of that, you know, uh, fresh herb right there in the pan. You're cooking it at a hotter temperature. You're extracting it out into the fat. The fat's coating the meat. You're going to get the flavor out of it, but um, and you're not, not in you're a not- bag. Yeah, you're not cooking it for hours in the pan. Right. You're cooking it for minutes. If you want if you wanted to, you could infuse the butter or the fat with the herbs. Yeah, compound butter, right. 
Well, not a compound butter. If you wanted to, you could actually take butter, put it in a bag, throw your herbs in there, put it in the water bath for several hours, strain it. Now you've got flavored fat or oil. So when you saute or sear, you can use that as your searing method. You can actually flavor flavor the surface with that uh, uh, herb a little bit. Yeah. So disclaimer again, so everybody doesn't get offended. You, know, you can cook any way you want, but some of these things, some of these things we're bringing up is because there are there are scientific reasons. There's there's uh, you know commonsensical reasons why it's not a good idea to do some of these things. But if you want to, you can. You're more than welcome to. All right, let's go to adjusting times and temps for fattier cuts versus lean cuts. I know this comes up a lot too. Everybody thinks that you know for a medium rare steak. Uh, they got to cook it at 129 degrees for three or four hours or two or three hours. And if you cook it at 134, it's not medium rare anymore. What do you say, Lloyd? I know we've talked about this before. <laughs> so uh, leaner cuts, uh, less time, if you like, on the rarer side. Fattier cuts, higher temperatures. So, for example, New York's for me, 128. Ribeyes, depending on the quality of the type of fat, 133 to 135. Uh Fattier steaks can withstand higher temperatures. And I'm not going to say the word render, because Kevin and I actually talked about this. It doesn't necessarily render the fat, per se, but it does soften it. So during the sear, it's edible. If you cook a ribeye at 129, again, this is my opinion, and you cook it for three to five hours, yeah, the steak's perfectly at 129, but the fat is, is still hard. So even after the sear, it doesn't taste very good. And also, all the connective... Uh, 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 tissues inside really do melt better at the higher temperatures. My opinion. Fatty Kevin? temperatures. Kevin. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with Lloyd. Uh, Lloyd and I had discussed this. Uh, geez, it's been a, probably a couple years. Uh, he and I, I think we both had the same sort of experience. We'd both gone to top end steakhouses, and uh, I I was at one down in Sarasota, Florida, and. Uh, I think it was Capitol Grill or something. Anyway, I talked, I, you know, I ordered uh, Rare for a Delmonico. And the waiter was like, I would recommend you actually order that higher end of medium rare to lower end of medium. And he explained to me, he said, this is, and he explained it exactly what Lloyd said, how, you know, the, the softening of the fat. Uh, and I said, okay, sounds good to me. And he was absolutely right. And I haven't cooked uh, ribeye below 134 since then. <laughs> um, and that's, that's, you know, and, and like Lloyd said, uh, you know, the fattier cuts can handle the higher temperature because they have the moisture from the fat. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing. And it was also, I, I think a lot of people talk about, you hear it all the time, fat equals flavor. Uh, fat, like I said earlier, is one of those things that are these flavor compounds can be dissolved into and carry those. And for some reason, when we're eating beef and we get some intramuscular or extramuscular, you know, whatever, if there's fat in there, it tastes beefier to us. But I would challenge anyone to try some pure rendered pork lard and take a teaspoonful of that when it's warm and tell me that tastes good. You know, it really doesn't taste much at all. It's a mouthfeel thing. So it has to be a combination of having the protein mixed in with the fat to get the flavor that you're looking for. Cause just pure rendered beef fat or, you know, chicken fat has a little chicken flavor to it, but it doesn't taste as much like chicken as chicken does. So that's just sort of, you know, fat is flavor, but fat adds, I would say fat adds to flavor. It enhances the flavor. 
because otherwise people would be eating beef fat all the time. <laughs> or, or, you know, right. you can't just you can't just add beef fat onto your onto a, a tenderloin, which is a real lean cut of meat, and now all of a sudden it's going to taste beefier. This actually goes on to our previous conversation about butter in the bag or fat in the bag. Think about it. If you cut off a piece of chunk of, of beef fat and render it and taste it, it doesn't taste that great. But during the cook, I believe that the fat is absorbing some of the beef flavor. So when you actually bite into the piece of fat that was cooked next to the beef, it, it, the, the, the burst of a, a beef flavor in your mouth is, is what I think happens. Yeah, well, I agree. And- I can relate this back to, you know, barbecue too, you know, the low and slow smoked briskets and stuff is a lot of the juiciness that comes from that cooking it all the way up to 200 degrees, you know, for 12 hours or, you know, till it starts to render that collagen and connective tissue like Lloyd was talking about earlier. That's where a lot of that juiciness comes from because I've seen people cook a brisket and they don't quite get it up to the you know 200 degrees or whatever and it's tough and it's dry but you crank it up to that just over the 200 degrees where all that collagen and connective tissue breaks down it's juicy again now moisture didn't get automatically squeezed back into the meat because it's always pushing the meat out when it's contracting from the heat but when that you know connective tissue and uh, collagen breaks down all of a sudden that's like gelatin. It's like, you know, it just makes it a lot more juicy. So people go, I overcooked my my brisket point or my brisket flat, you know, so it's so dry. Well, you didn't cook it long enough. So, Well, the collagen is suspended within the meat fibers. Yeah. So that's what happens as, as, as it is squeezing, like you said, and it starts to break down as the fat starts to melt, it gets suspended within the fibers. So when you're eating that piece of brisket, it's, it, it appears more moist because the fat rendered inside to the meat. Exactly. Go ahead, Kevin. You had your... Um, yeah, the, uh, when you're cooking a brisket up to those high temperatures, uh, you've by far exceeded the water holding capacity of the protein. So moisture loss, you know, whatever water, myoglobin, all, I mean, that stuff's pretty much gone. So now all you have to rely on is uh, gelatin and fat. So the connective tissue gets converted to gel. The collagen gets converted to gelatin. That lubricates the, uh, you know, like in brisket, it's very, uh, there's a lot of fibers, uh, lubricates that. And that and the fat are the only thing that really keep and save it. I've done a brisket at 132 degrees for 72 hours and through enzymatic, an enzymatic uh, conversion of collagen to gelatin, I can achieve the same result that someone does at an internal temperature, 205 degrees on their brisket. So it depends how you get there, but there, there are different ways to get there. But when I do the brisket at 132 degrees, I still retain the moisture holding capacity in the meat. So I have that bonus on top of, you know, instead of losing that at 205. Makes sense. I like the word you use lubricates. That's very true. The, the, the fibers of the protein strands uh, are coated with, with the connective tissue, the melted connective uh, uh, tissues, the gelatin. Right. All right. So let's, let's go to the next topic, which is the importance of thickness versus the weight of something. All the time you get somebody come on that's, you can tell her a novice right away when they go, I've got a four pound um, this, you know, how long do I cook it? So what's the importance of thickness versus the weight? Basically, the thicker the protein, the longer you have to cook it. It's just thermal mass. A lot of times what I've seen, people get set on these times. I cook a ribeye or a New York at 
three hours, and they don't take into consideration the thickness. A 25 millimeter, or rather a one inch steak, will take much much less time to reach a core temperature of 128 versus a two inch steak, which sometimes is four times as long. Uh, I got into an argument the other day with a person because I cooked my um, I cooked my ribeye at six and a half hours. So only needs four hours. I said it was two and a half inches thick. It never reached an internal temperature of 134 until four hours and 20 minutes. So oftentimes people are undercooking their meats. So thickness is essential to determine time in the water bath. Yeah. And you really can't tell unless, you know, you got that probe that you've been doing a lot of experiments with. And uh, I know even uh, Crea has been doing a lot more studying with that. And Kevin can probably tell me more about that because he's taking some classes there. And I know that they've been using a probe and a lot of their stuff going back and, and looking at some of the times and temps, right, Kevin? Yeah. We use probes and everything. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, and, it, and it's basic food, um, you know, cooking methodologies, knowing that is whether you're cooking it on a grill and a smoker, it, it takes longer for a thicker piece of meat to cook all the way. You know? So, I mean, that's just, it's not something that's unique to sous vide cooking. It's just a basic, you know, principle of cooking any type of method. Go ahead, Kevin. When, uh, when people bring this up, I, I often try to use an example, uh, because they'll often say wait, and I'll say, okay, if you take a, a five-pound pork butt, and you have so this big oblate spheroid is basically what it almost is, uh, but you know a pork butt can be eight inches thick, nine, ten inches thick. But I tell them, what if you put that through a roller and take it down to one centimeter, and it may be nine feet long by two feet wide. But if you throw that in the water, you, you can you can cook that in a matter of minutes. <laughs> but that big thick pork butt's going to take you twenty hours to get proper, you know, to get the internal temperature to be the equivalent of the water temperature is going to take a long time, depending on the temperature, obviously. But people often, when I use that sort of sort of example, people go, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." It's like pounding a veal cutlet. You know, a big big right. veal steak's obviously going to cook. A, you know, a, a veal cutlet's obviously going to cook a lot quicker than a, a veal steak, veal chop. So it's, it's just, or even a know, spatchcock chicken, a spatchcock yeah. chicken versus a whole chicken. You know, it's the, the, the thermodynamics transfer through all cooking methods. Go ahead, Lloyd. You're raising your hand. <laughs> One last thing. You know, when I'm in doubt, um, I'll consult Baldwin's tables. I'm not talking about his pasteurization, pasteurization tables. I'm talking about this time to temperature, because they're within 20, 25% uh, accurate to what I've been doing with the probes. So if someone says to me, and I don't have it in front of me, or I don't have the data to support my claim, I say, go to Baldwin's tables. You know, a, a 70 millimeter steak, you know, how long is it going to take to get to temperature? He's got the times right there, and they're, they're fairly accurate, you know. Um, so my, my go-to when I don't know, using my data is to go to Baldwin's tables, not the pasteurization tables, but time to temperature tables. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that, especially when new people come in and I get this a lot in the barbecue groups. When I try to talk about sous vide, they, they think somebody like came up with sous vide in their basement or something or in their bathtub. You know, it's, you know, the people that put this together are actual food scientists, you know, like, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Bernard, you know, is, is a food scientist. That's where he started from. He's not going to do something that, just making stuff up on the fly, you know, 
I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of science that goes into a lot of this stuff. So let's walk into ice bat, you know, ice bathing or chilling, because this is a big thing that gets confused. And, and I talked to you a little bit earlier about this before. There's reasons to ice bath for different, many different reasons, not just one. So I've had people ask us all the time, when should I ice bath? Go ahead, Lloyd. Well, long-term storage. If you're going to put the food in the refrigerator to be served at a later time, you have to ice bath. And what I'm finding with relatives I've talked to, people I've discussed online, they're not using enough ice for the amount of protein. Um, In fact, I'll go back to Baldwin. If you look at Baldwin's uh, numbers, it takes hours to um, bring your food temperature below 70 degrees. And I'm finding that people are not using enough ice. And and you've seen my ice buckets, right? And I, I always have 60 to 70 pounds of ice on hand at any given time. And uh, I, I learned pretty fast that you almost need, at a minimum, a five-to-one ratio. So if you've got a pound of meat, you need five pounds of ice. I know it sounds excessive, but if your goal is to drop the temperature down rapidly, you need a lot of ice. And the thicker it is, of course, um, it's going to take longer. And, and Kevin and I discussed this the other day. So you know you don't know unless you got probes, of course, but if you sous vide at 133, it may take an hour to go from 132 to 133 to reach equal equilibrium. The same thing works inverse in reverse with ice. So your ice bath is 32 degrees, right? Well, your protein is able to get down to 32 degrees. As it gets down below 47 degrees, it slows down rapidly. You know, so um Ice bath, very important, lots and lots of ice. So, Kevin. Well, and also, uh, you know, thickness comes into play there as well. Just like just like thickness is important when you're cooking it, when you're chilling it. If it's a really thin piece of meat, it's going to chill a lot quicker than, you know, a big, thick roast. So, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, the, the like like Lloyd said, the ice thing is the same as the heating. It's just going to – it takes forever. Uh, and most people don't realize. I think a lot of people – since they're not using like Lloyd's using a probe and a graphing thermometer and you can watch all this stuff. Most people are guessing because it's in the bag and they don't want to puncture that bag. So they're throwing in uh, ice water and maybe doing it for 20 minutes. And they don't realize mm-hmm. that, you know, if it, if they cooked it at 135 degrees, now it might be at 80 degrees and they throw it into the refrigerator. And, and now it takes four hours to get down to 40 degrees, if not longer. Um, yeah, so you, you definitely need a lot of ice. Having a probe helps uh, to to check it, but it definitely takes a lot longer than most people think. Uh, well, I use this example too because you can use it. Um, people that are used to doing barbecue, they'll they'll cook a brisket up to its you know 195 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit, take it off the smoker, and then wrap it in towels and put it in a cooler and let it sit there for two or three hours it'll continue to cook and they take it out and it's still, you know, 200 degrees or 140, 150 degrees and they eat it. So, I mean, it's sitting in a cooler for, you know, hours on end, they take it out and it's still at the temperature they can eat it at and it's continued to cook while it sat in there. So uh, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Also uh, the step down cooling method is actually a more effective method uh, and it'll actually, it actually improves the quality of the product if you're going to store it. Uh, if you're going to eat it right away, it, obviously you're not going to do the cooling method. But you actually, 
So if you take uh, whatever you're cooking out of your water bath and let it sit at room temperature for half, let's say half an hour is generally a good time, good, good amount of time, no matter what you're doing. Obviously, if it's a bigger piece, you're, you might use a little more time. Uh, anyway, after that, then you put it into uh, tap water, you know, the water temperature that comes out of your tap. I fill a sink up, fill the water, fill it up with tap water, and then I put the protein in after that, after it sat out at room temperature. Then you let that sit in the tap water for about half an hour. Then you transfer it to the ice bath. And by doing that, and I'm not, I don't know the science behind it. I should have researched it, uh, and I will look for it in the future. And I probably looked it up, but haven't been able to find anything yet because there's some things out there that are tricky. Anyway, what I am told by the inventor of this process is that you get a 5% increase in yield. So the meat is actually reabsorbing some of the liquid, what we call purge, that's in the bag. It's actually reabsorbing some of it. So you actually get a higher yield, and therefore you, you also get a juicier product. That's very interesting. Well, uh, I have to look at that. Darren, I've done it before with ribeyes, and, and yes, it works. What I like to do is take Kevin's technique or Korea's technique and compare it with uh, two identical steaks, you know, and, and have my guests taste them and say which one they prefer. Maybe weigh them you know, before and afterwards and see if there's a, a 5% uh, yield uh, capacity. So be fun. Another test. I love these tests. Well, let's take a quick break here so we can talk about Inkbird. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about another reason why we should ice bath. We'll be right back. Hey, all, I want to welcome again Inkbird as our sponsor for the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Inkbird has more than just barbecue thermometers and instant read thermometers that I've talked about before. Inkbird just came out with a Wi-Fi sous vide circulator that I've been using for a few weeks now that works pretty good. Has over 1,000 watts of power. Has a app that has many times and temps for meats and vegetables. Also has onboard times and temps for meats and vegetables. Runs really quiet. Fits most regular sous vide containers that are the size of the Anovas. So check it out. Look below, there's a link with a code for 30% off of the Amazon price makes it under $60 right now. So check out the Inkbird Wi-Fi sous vide circulator in the description below. Back to our program. So now let's talk about using an ice bath for searing because you're still going to, you want to eat it right away. But, you know, a lot of people will say you have to ice bath it before you sear it or you're going to overcook it. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because I just ran an experiment last night and my opinion might be changing, uh, but my, my can response to everyone uh, as to why we shock before we sear, and I, I wrote it down because I use it often. If you don't shock first, you're adding heat to a protein that is already at its optimum temperature, which means it is going to go higher than the sous vide process temperature. Well, a friend of mine in one of the groups, I say, Lloyd, run an experiment for me. So I took four steaks, and I've only done two so far. And um, I kept them between, uh, I think they measured between 28 and 33 millimeters. The first steak, um, I basically sat on the counter. Uh, five minutes on one side. Now it's tile, so uh, it's much colder. Five minutes each side, cut the bag open, dry it off very, very well, put pepper on it, threw it in my, uh, my skillet, stirred it uh, for 90 seconds. 
uh, 30 seconds uh, top and bottom, uh, seven and a half seconds in all the corners and all the size, you know, port, starboard, left and right, you know, aft. And um, anyway, I took the temperature afterwards and the temperature uh, was almost identical to what the water temperature was, except there was more gradient color on the perimeter. The next thing I took was uh, um, I did it directly out of the out of the um, out of the bath, cut it open, dried it off, threw it in a skillet. Less gray, uh, more gradient color than the than the, the ten minute rest. Um, so, but looking at it visually, there was a difference. But the taste, both tasted amazing. So I, I think shocking uh, a little bit on the counter works and i got two more steaks i'm gonna do uh tomorrow so uh, stay tuned i'm running about it so now I, i've tried something where like i with most of my poultry like spatchcock chicken and stuff when i take it out of the sous vide bath i don't chill it before i put it on the smoker and i'll usually run my smoker my pellet smoker whatever at a higher temperature you know 375 to 425 because I want to try to crisp the skin up as much as possible. And what I've found, and it's, it's kind of like what happens with the, uh, when you're cooking a brisket um, on a regular smoker where you have the stall, where you got the evaporative cooling, you know, where the meat comes up to, let's say, 160 to 165, and it sits there for two hours before it starts to rise. You know, the internal temperature goes higher. You know, and what I feel is that temperature, whatever the temperature of that meat, the chicken is, it's, you know, 148 is what I usually cook it to. It doesn't have enough time, even if I cook it for 45 minutes to almost an hour in that hotter smoker, the temperature of the meat doesn't rise right away. It actually sits there just like if it was a stall on a, on a, on a pork butt or a brisket for a good 30 to 40 minutes before the internal temperature starts to rise. Well, you're just trying to crisp your chicken skin, correct? So the cook time is short. Right. Exactly. You're trying to get a little bit of smoke and just crisp the skin. But, you know, but people always would tell me, well, you're all of a sudden your, your chicken's going to be at, you know, 200, 200 degrees, like within 10 minutes, because it's going to continue to rise like right away. But it's, but it, it takes a while, you know, just like it takes a while for it to cool down you know, it takes a while for it to, to rise, you know, from that 140 because it's been sitting at that 148 or whatever for so long, you know, to get it to jumpstart to go faster. It doesn't go right away. And that's what people don't understand. They think it's going to, as soon as I put it in the smoker at, you know, 400 degrees, you know, in 10 minutes, that chicken's going to be overcooked at, you know, you know, 220 degrees or what have you. So it's very interesting to me, but uh, I hardly ever sear, uh, or um, ice bath stuff that I'm going to sear right away, unless it's like really thin and I want to keep it at a medium rare, like a thin steak or something. I'll, I'll I'll ice bath it or at least cool it down some in a in a lukewarm in a uh, just tap water or something just to lower that temperature down just enough to where it's not going to affect it when I sear it quick. So yeah, I just I I generally don't ice bath uh, before searing. Uh, unless I'm trying to really impress someone with this technique. Because if there's a little bit of a gray ring around the steak, I'm okay with that because I, I know what I did. I know I could have done better, but, you know, I want to eat. <laughs> um, but right. here, here's how I look at it. If, you, if you're using an ice bath before you're going to sear, what you're doing is, is like I said, you know, it, it's, it's pretty much the reverse of heat. It, it, it's, adding heat works the same as adding cold. It kind of, you know, the thickness and everything works the same way. Uh, when you're 
going to ice bath something, what you're going to do is cool down the outside of the steak or the protein, whatever you're doing, a lot faster than if you, say, let it sit on a counter. Uh, it's going to be coming more to equal. So like when you sear a steak, you get that gray, you know, when you're cooking traditionally in a pan and you're looking for a medium rare steak and you sear it in a hot pan, you're going to have that big gray ring where it got really hot. And then you're going to have like medium rare and then probably rare right in the middle. Same thing happens when you put it in an ice bath. You're going to chill that outside a hell of a lot faster than the inside is going to chill. So you can still have, you know, if you pulled that steak at 135 degrees, you could have, the outside of that steak down pretty low and the inside of that steak's probably still around 132. So then you sear it and you're going to do less damage. You're going to, you're going to get less of the grain, uh, less of the actual degradation of the myoglobin. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Now back to what you're saying though, about Darren, about your chicken. So on short cooks, that works very, very well. But if you're going to do a brisket, for example, right. I'll still be your brisket. You know, making let's say pastrami or corned beef or something like what I'm going to do, a regular traditional smoked brisket, and I'll refrigerate it overnight. That way, I can put it on my smoker for three or four hours, uh, and and it won't overcook. But I would never take let's say a hot brisket and put it inside my smoker for like four or five hours because it would raise the internal temperature. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do it with poultry because I'm not, I'm not trying to build a bark mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, get, you know, a lot of smoke to it. Chicken, you know, poultry takes smoke really mm-hmm. easy. So you don't need a whole lot of time on a smoker to get smoke on it. Go ahead, Kevin. Also, uh, like to hop on what Lloyd said, uh, when you cool, so when I do a brisket sous vide and then I'm going to add smoke afterwards, which is how I usually do it. I don't smoke beforehand. Uh, I get mine as cold as possible. Sometimes I'll put it in the freezer. Smoke is attracted to cold surfaces. So if I've cooked cold or wet, yet cold and wet is the best. Um, And so if I want to cook my, you know, if I do my brisket at 132, which is what I like, 132, 135, uh, I don't want to exceed that temperature. So I'll put it in the freezer or the refrigerator overnight. And then I will put it in the smoker, you know, and it'll be 100 or it'll be 36 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And I'll put it in the smoker and then bring it back up to, you know, 130 or whatever. But I'll get a lot more smoke on it in a shorter amount of time. Better bark, a better bark. But both. Yeah, better yeah. bark, better mm-hmm. smoke, and uh, spritz it every once in a while. It, it lets that smoke adhere and just makes an overall better product. I agree 100%. So let's talk about proper searing techniques because you know, walking into that from ice bathing, you know, to, for a sear, I think it's a lot more important to remove all the moisture from especially a steak or a chicken breast. If you want to get that really great Maillard reaction, it's a lot more important to get as much moisture off of it as possible than to cool it down or what have you, especially if it's on a thicker steak. Agreed? Lloyd? Well, I have opinions on that. Surprise, surprise. So let's be honest. What is searing? <laughs> what is searing? It only happens after all the water, the surface water has evaporated, right? So water boils at 212. So the drier the steak is, the quicker the Maillard will happen. So if you start out with a very, very dry steak, and I'll go as far as I'll use paper towels or dry it off, and I'll put it in front of a fan for 10 minutes. That surface is dry. Uh, yeah, I'm extreme, I know. That way, it spends actually less time in the pan so it doesn't overcook. So, for example, if you use my technique, it only may only take a 45-second sear on both sides. Versus a person doesn't dry very well, it may take 55 seconds to, to, to uh, 
to get that sear, the Maillard, which means you could possibly overcook your meat. So, oh, very high temperature. Exactly. And use a little bit of oil. Um, I'm a big mayo fan, personally. Mayo and a little bit of uh, avocado oil. So, Maybe they should make an avocado oil mayo. That'd be cool. They do. They do. do. (laughs) Oh, do they? I know they do olive oil. They do. So look at and get in on this. Um, So uh, when I was at Korea, the the searing technique they talk about is, is we do a pre-sear. Well, they do a pre-sear and a post-sear. And like Lloyd said, you want to dry the meat. Uh, It takes an amazing amount of energy to turn water into steam. And that's why it takes so long to sear something if you don't dry it. And that's why you'll end up overcooking and getting that gray ring, which kind of, you know, makes the the whole effort useless. Um, I mean, not totally, but, uh, you know, you want to have that nice edged edge sear. Uh, so they teach uh, the technique and they do not want you to sear above 450 degrees. And the reasoning for that, no, it's 420 degrees, excuse me, 420 degrees. Uh, the reasoning for that <clears throat> is based on mutagen creation. So during the Maillard reaction, you can, at higher temperatures, create these things. It's a protein reaction called mutagens, which have been shown to be cancerous in non-human primates, rats, mice, blah, blah, blah. No one's been able to prove it in humans. Uh, So they teach us to do it before and after, but at no temperature higher than 420 degrees. I... But there's another issue. It's not only the temperature, it's the time it's at a certain temperature. So if you sear something at a real high temperature and get the Maillard reaction a lot quicker, I think you're probably doing just as well as if you're doing it at 420 degrees. I I sear on high temperature, uh, and I'm with Lloyd. I love the mayo thing. Once I uh, had heard about the mayo sear, I tried it. I, I buy the Q, the Japanese QP mayonnaise and use that, and I get amazing results. I mean, it cuts my searing time in half, and the yes. quality is twice as good. Um, so, and, and I, I only use QP now. That's all. I'm, that's my that's my searing mayonnaise. I've had a lot of people tell me. I told someone to use it on, you know, an A5 piece of Wagyu, and they lost their mind, and they're like, I'm not having a $100 steak taste like some crappy mayonnaise. And blah, blah. You can't taste the mayonnaise. You put an extremely thin layer. I mean, I'm using half a teaspoon on a steak, at, you know, and you just smear it around, and it's an extremely thin layer. And you also don't get the problems that you get where you're at if you add butter or oil to a hot pan and then add your steak. You've actually added the the fat to the steak and you get a lot less problem with spattering and you don't get as much smoke. It's, it's a lot cleaner and it works out really well. Yeah. I think that's the big secret to that. And I've seen people come in and go, Oh, you mayo sear. And then they just got globs and glops of it on there. And then they, they sear it and it's just got these big chunks. Like they, you know, made a chicken fried steak or something you know, <laughs> because they just, they use so much. And I, you know, I've tried it a couple of times and, you know, that's one of the things I know is I, I take a basting brush and I just put a really thin layer on. And, um, you know, that's what you're really looking for. You're not looking to make a, you know, chicken fried steak, you know. <laughs> so, um, no, you can't talk. So you kind of <laughs> touched on a point, but uh, we'll get back to it, Lloyd. You touched on a point that I had, you know, further down where we're going to talk about the uh, two-stage searing. So you that's kind of what you were talking about there, which you learned at Korea was uh, 
they, you know, they do a post and a priest here on the same piece of meat. So I jumped the gun. Um, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, it, it came out. I just want people to understand that that's, that's what that's called. It's called two stage searing. And you know, that's some of the things that you can get into another thing. It's, it's personal preference, but you know, Craya kind of put some science behind it to why it, it is what it is. That doesn't mean it's going to produce a better product. It's going to, you know, for what they're trying to do, it may be a better product. So go ahead, Lloyd. I'll let you talk. Mayo <laughs> thing, like Kevin was saying, uh, the herbs and spices stick to it also. So you can put a lot of pepper on your steak and nothing falls off because yeah. of the mayo. It's great. So I, lo- I love the mayo. But now, but that's a good point that, that Kevin brought up too, though, is that you're putting, you're applying the oil. And I usually do that anyway. If I'm applying oil to uh, a steak, I put it on the steak. I don't put it on in the pan, you know, and worry about the pan, you know, like you said, the smoke, you know, setting off the fire alarm or what have you. So um, it's, it's always better to put it right on the, the steak because it, it that's, that's, it's going to heat up just the same time as a steak is you don't have to worry about heating the uh, oil up in the pan first. All right, so now let's get into a a really deep, dark topic <laughs> that I know Lloyd's going to really love, and <laughs> he's done a lot of stuff on this. Let's talk about warm aging, warm aging steaks. What is it? How is it? What does it do? And go ahead, Lloyd, because you've done a lot of work. I've been doing on it for it. several years now, probably four four years now, and and I've been really looking into it, and it dates back over twenty years ago. There's a lot of science behind it. You know, Modern Cuisine, uh, written by Nathan Myoid, uh, a guy named Laurie back in the uh, 1970s done it. Harold McGee talked about it with just roasting large meats in his oven. So basically, it's what's happening. You're, you're roasting or sous vide your meats at low temperatures, normally 103 to 120, at different enzymes to produce at those two different temperatures. And these are the same enzymes that uh, are present during traditional dry aging um, that is done in refrigerators at low temps. Um, the warm aging process hastens uh, the uh, dry aging process, basically. Um, the tender meat is the byproduct of the enzymatic process. It does not replace traditional dry aging, but it makes the steak or protein much more tender. Um, traditionally it's done at two temperatures, 103 and 120, but after testing, they found that temperature at 120 actually produces some off, uh, flavors, not, not great. And, and I've done it both ways and you can detect flavors at 120. Um, would you like me to go into the times and, and why I only use one temperature now, 113? Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, first I want to kind of talk about warm aging like you said, it doesn't replace dry aging, but it's more similar to wet aging. So what wet aging is, is when, you know, the, the, uh, steer is butchered and there's a certain time where there's, you know, you're trying to get rid of the, um, rigor mortis, you know, that's, you know, comes when, when something dies, you know, everything tenses up and it's tough. So the natural enzymes, you know, when you wet age something, you're letting the enzymes, in the meat, you know, break it down and, and and so what warm aging does it's kind of speeds up the wet aging process not the dry there's, there's aging. no f- a flavor enhancement at all none because uh, no, right. yeah, what dry aging does is actually you're, you're losing moisture it's concentrating a lot of the flavors in More into fun. the meat and it's changing it 
and fermenting uh, more some. funk. Basically. Yeah, it's it's and you're for, for fermenting and everything else. You're doing a lot more than wet aging or warm aging. You're actually got you know air involved. You got you know uh, bacteria involved and and all that kind of stuff. So go ahead with the uh, so so. What's your favorite times well, and temps? It's for not that? my temp. It's Nathan Myard. He wrote this back, and I think in. Uh, 2004 maybe uh 113 degrees the best of both worlds um and i'll touch on that uh for a second so a lot the theory is most people will do between an hour to an hour and 30 minutes at 104 103 and then increase the sous vide to 120 122 degrees for another 90 minutes having cooked with probes i can tell you it does not work if you take an inch and a half steak and you put it in a water bath at 104 degrees, the time you, when it's time to increase the sous vide temperature to 120, your steak has spent no time at 104 degrees. It's barely out of the, the high 90s. Okay. Same thing goes for 120. I'm talking like 90 minutes now, not even one hour. So you go from 104 to 120, you increase your sous vide, it climbs from the high 90s to 120. Time it hits 120, you it's probably spends maybe 20 minutes, 15 minutes at 120. If you set your sous vide at 113, okay, and you cook it for let's say two to three hours, um, a great portion of the time is spent at 104, and it'll hover around between a 111 and 113 towards the upper end, and you produce a, a better product. And I've done um, uh, several cuts of meat back and forth, and where I've used two stages versus three stages, and the two stages are way better in flavor, and it tenderizes the meat just as well. Better flavor, better taste, and no off taste that you get at 120. So I'm a big fan. Yeah, I did. I did one the other day. Um, first time I ever did it, I said, you know, I've never done this. I've seen it talked about. I'm going to go ahead and try it, and uh, I did one regular 135 for you know for two and a half hours like i normally would and um i did one um where i warm aged it first at 113 for three hours and then cooked it for the same amount of time at the 135 and i could tell a big difference especially in the uh tenderness uh, i had my son he didn't even know what i did and i said which one you know taste this one taste that one Said, well, this one's a lot more tender, and it was the one I, I had warm aged. So I know it works just from from that. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah the the pro the two proteins that are involved in this are I was looking at uh, cathepsin and calpanes. Uh, cathepsin I think plays a bigger role, uh, and the temperatures that Lloyd's suggesting are the ones that I use. So I was I I don't remember I might have learned everything about this from Lloyd. Uh, but I was doing the 103 and the 113 or the, or the 103 and the 120. I did that for a while. And I think I did learn that from Lloyd and then he did more research. So now I'm at 113 all time. Now, the reason we use that is that's where the enzymes, those particular enzymes or that particular enzyme is in high gear. It doesn't mean they're not working between 103 and 113. It's just 113's prime for that. So that's when you're going to get the best effect in the least amount of time. Uh, and it's, it does, it, it works really well and I've done it quite a bit and I, I can tell a difference. I really, I, I'm a total believer in dry agent if I, or, or the faux agent, if I have uh, the time, I'll do it. Uh, basically, I think the major difference between the faux agent and the dry agent is dry agent 
and obviously it's longer, but you've slowed those enzymes down considerably when you're below 40 degrees. Uh, the advantage dry aging has is you're reducing the moisture. So you're basically concentrating the beef flavor. There's less water. Uh, so I think the faux aging is, is a great thing to do. It's, it's a cheap, it, it, virtually free way to really improve the quality of your steak. Sorry. Yeah. And especially if you purchase your meat at Costco where they do, they do very little uh, wet aging. I mean, they pretty much take their stuff from the uh, packing plant and throw it out on the shelves. And if you look at the, at the next time you buy any beef at Costco, at the date that it came in, you know, from the packing plant and what their uh, sell by date is, it's like within a week. I mean, they have, and that's why they do the blade tenderizing of their cut steaks is because they don't wet age it. I mean, it's usually a lot tougher because they don't wet age. I'll wet age Costco's meat. (laughs) Yeah. I actually had my wife buy a, a, prime uh, sirloin whole uh, sirloin today and actually put it in the refrigerator and i'll leave it in there for a week you know a week or two before i even cut it up sorry i think go I, ahead kevin the, yeah the, the two enzymes i was talking about it's calpanes and cathepsin i think those are the ones uh they are. just want to make sure i was clear on that <laughs> your viewers Boy, are interested. i have a, a huge write-up with footnotes and a bibliography on my blog uh that discusses this in detail in fact I'm going as far as running another experiment where I'm going to take a, a hopefully a two and a half inch ribeye. I'm going to warm age one with two stages and one with three stages and document all the times to those temperatures. So I can be real precise with the data and let you know how long they actually spent at 103 and, and 120 versus 113. Uh, and another point uh, about warm aging or two stage or three stage cooking is the moisture loss. So, for example, you could take a tri-tip, you could warm age it at three hours, you can process it at 133, my preferred temperature, for seven to eight hours. Tastes great. Um, I can document the moisture loss. I could re- I can reproduce those same results and cook a, um, uh, a tri-tip at 12 hours. It'll taste the same, but there's uh, more moisture loss from the one that cooked for 12 hours. So warm aging tenderizes it, but it requires less time in the bath to get the same results as if you cooked it longer. Yeah, that was going to be one of the questions I had. What would what would be the difference if you did just did it longer? And like you said, you lose more moisture that way. So well, I've, got, I've, got math. And, I've uh, done it online. I have all the math documented and all the percentages. Well, and I'm going to have to try that on a brisket cook because a lot of people do. They'll take brisket cooks. I think they take too long anyway. You know, doing 72 hours on a brisket is ridiculous to me, but I see people do it all the time. And I see, you know, and they don't do it on their own. They'll just, they they saw it somewhere where 72 hours is what you need to do on a brisket. And, you know, I've done it when I did it like for medium rare. When I did a medium rare brisket, I did it for 72 hours. But I can see where you can use this warm aging on a brisket at the medium rare temperature and not have to do 72 hours. So I can see, I can see where that would really come It'd into play. It'd be really play. hard to quantify that because briskets have so much fat. Yeah. Oh, and variation. Yeah. Yes. And, and a lot of connective tissue and everything too. So yeah, another thing. yeah. That's why brisket's so hard. It's, there's so much variation between brisket and, you know, one brisket here and one brisket there. It's, right. it's really a tough muscle to deal with. 
what I've done with ribeye specifically is I'll go to Costco besides wet aging and I'll buy a big one and I'll cut two steaks that are side by side. So they're relatively identical. That's a better experiment. You take two almost identical steaks and, and, and apply, apply your methods and then contrast the differences. A little bit better technique. Because it's really hard to get two briskets from the same animal. All right. Well, let's go. We're kind of going to wrap up here, but I want to talk about, especially to Kevin, because you just came back from some Korea training. And, uh, you know, I know that's kind of where, you know, the hotbed of new things come from because they, they're always experimenting and coming up with new stuff. What's some of the higher level stuff? Well, and you also went to the uh, sous vide, uh, International Sous Vide Association Sous Vide Summit last year where Crea brought a lot of this uh, higher-end, higher-level uh, sous vide stuff, like the uh, uh, with those gels and, and stuff that they were making. So let's talk about that. What What is some of that stuff that you've seen or, or looked at on the higher-end stuff that people don't even know that sous vide can do? Well, one of the most impressive things that I've seen lately, and they offer a whole other course on this, is uh, cryoconcentration. Uh and basically what they're doing is they're taking uh, peelings of vegetables, fruits, this sort of thing. You put them in a sous vide bag with liquid. You cook them in a sous vide bath. Now, I haven't taken this course. This is just my general understanding of it. I've played around with it a little bit on my own, uh, but I don't, I'm don't. i not a, definitely not an expert. Uh, I'm trying to find an excuse to pay for the course, but I haven't found it yet. <laughs> but uh, they... Uh, they they take this stuff and and when I was at the last training back in December, uh, AJ Schaller brought us back and had us try some cocktails and stuff she had made, and she had done a butternut squash reduction, uh, cryo reduction, and basically so they take the peelings, the leftover stuff that usually goes in the garbage, put it in a bag, and there's there's actually a lot of flavor in all that stuff. That's often where most of the flavor is, and they put it in a bag, they sous vide it. Then they do cryoconcentration where basically they're freezing it, taking out the ice crystals, and they're concentrating it that way. So think about uh, the one AJ, the, the good uh, simile or comparison that she does. is like if, you're, if you go to 7-Eleven, get a slushy, and you let it sit in your car on a hot summer day, and it just sits there, what happens? All of a sudden, you have water on top, and all the flavor, all the syrup and sugar and stuff is on the bottom, so you get layers. So what they're doing is taking that layer of just water out and getting rid of that. So they're concentrating the flavor and they'll do multiple concentrations. And some of these things you'll try, you know, they'll do a three X concentration, you know, four or five, and they let you try these. And all of a sudden you get into these, these flavors and it's like, all of a sudden, wow, you taste a tomato. Like you've never tasted tomato before. Um, And I did a little bit of it when we had, we had a really good sweet corn uh, season this year. And I played around with it a bit and I took some samples down to AJ when I was at my last course and she did a bricks comparison on it. Uh, you know, checked the bricks level on it, tasted them. And I had a, I had a corn reduction that was like at 16 bricks or something. I mean, it was pretty high in sugar and I ended up making a sorbet straight out of that liquid. Uh, another thing we did when I was at the sous vide course at Korea was we played around with foie gras and did foie gras, uh, roulades uh you know you, and, it, and it, works, it just works brilliantly and you get basically 100 percent yield out of your foie gras as opposed to a lot of other methods where you don't so those are i mean those are the high-end stuff we we process shellfish uh 
you know, a lot of people don't do much shellfish. We did oysters uh, and mussels, and those came out spectacular, especially the mussels. They were just sub sublime. Uh, that's, you know, other than that, you know, we use high quality meats and that sort of thing. But you can, there is, there, obviously there are some limitations to this cooking technique, but they're not too many that I can think of. Well, and, and some of the things that, you know, not really high level, but are just different that people don't um, think of normally that sous vide can do, like the alcohol infusions, you know, you can do an alcohol infusion without sous vide. It just takes a lot longer you know, pickling, you know, I made pickled red onions. Yeah, you can do that in your refrigerator. It'll just take you a lot longer to get the same result than if you use sous vide because you are using that low temperature and you're speeding up the process and you're not boiling them. And you're not, you know, uh, using a, an abusive temperature that's going to break down the, uh, the, uh, you know, cell structure. So Lloyd, you have I something. Have a few things. The alcohol infusion, pickling, which is awesome. Uh, I've made cheese using sous vide, be able to control the temperature. You can make cheese, uh, proofing bread. I mean, you can just set up a contraption, uh, pasteurizing ground meat for burgers, custards. We've already discussed warm aging, of course, uh, but cheese making is amazing. Cheese making, proofing bread is, is, is great. I'm done. Yeah, I, I've done the, the bread, the bread proofing, uh, I've made uh, kefir, uh, oh, yeah. which I, I basically just take. Uh, it's it's a basically a yogurt that just has yogurt like 20, drink. 20 probiotics instead of three. Uh, and what I do is I just buy a nice product at my local Wegmans, my grocery store, and I just pour a little bit of that into some milk and throw it into the bath at 110 degrees and... 12 to 18 hours later, I have homemade kefir that cost me two bucks, three bucks a gallon instead of 40 bucks a gallon. <laughs> and then I can hold on to that store-bought kefir for a long time. It lasts forever. I do it. I do. I make kefir creme fraiche just by heavy cream, pour some of that kefir and shake it up, put it in the bath 18 hours later. I have a thick creme fraiche. It's almost, it's thicker than sour cream. It's almost That's like awesome. cream cheese. If you go 18 hours at one um, there, yeah, there are all sorts of great things you can do. A lot of, uh, you can do black garlic in it. You know, black garlic's damn expensive. Uh, you can make black garlic for pennies on the dollar using sous vide. I don't think it's the best method for making black garlic, but I've done it. I've done it the regular method. I've done it sous vide just to see if I could do it. Yeah, there's a lot of fun different things that uh, once people start playing around with it and open up their minds, you know, it. and that's one of the things I love about it is, you know, and it ticks me off when people come in and go, sous vide makes a great steak and that's it. And it's like, you know, and, and, and I have this in my Facebook group all the time, get some of the barbecue guys go, uh, yeah, don't, don't use sous vide to do, you know, pork butter. Don't use sous vide to do this or that, you know, it's better just to do it the other way. And it's like, well, maybe you haven't done it the right way. Cause there's so many variables with sous vide. There's a lot more variables in sous vide that, um, with times and temps and because it's a precision cooking, method that um, you can play around with to, to dial it down to your personal taste. There's a lot more than, than any other cooking method that I can see. So you guys agree oh, yeah. with that? Oh yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, this has been a really good talk. Uh, I'm sure we could talk it for hours on this. Two stuff things. And... Just one, two things real uh -huh. quick. Um, real quick. This would digress a moment. Pre-searing. Uh, it could increase the depth of flavor. 
to your protein. Number two, it kills all surface pathogens, which I, I could be important uh, if you are mechanically tenderizing your meat. Just my, my 15 cents there. So, well, and I can, I can see pre-searing on like a, like a big roast or something like that, where, especially if you're going to cook it for a longer time, so you get rid of that, um, you know, uh, what's the name of that, uh, there you go. bacteria, <laughs> the, oh, by the way, that's not being confirmed by the way, Darren, that's an assumption that it's like. This is this is one of the one of the few things in sous vide that's just driving me nuts because I cannot find anything to absolute to to back me up on when I say I have a lactobacillus bloom. But yeah, I've I'll never had it happen to anything I've cooked. So, but I've I've had people say it, and I've had people in my group go, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's usually when they cook in under one hundred and thirty degrees. So, well, Lloyd and I have a group. Uh, well, actually, lactobacillus can live up to 138 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Lloyd and I have a group called Sous Vide Food and Fun. If you get on there, I put a post up a few weeks ago. It raised a lot of ire from people. Uh, and I put, uh, I think they were short ribs. And uh, they have a green tint to them for sure if you look at the picture. So if you get on Sous Vide Food and Fun on Facebook and just type in my name and look at my pre- previous posts, it should come up pretty recently. Uh, there's some green meat on there and I'll tell you, but you know, it, it, I just seared it and the, it was fine. It's, it's not a pathogen. It, it it's actually a beneficial bacteria. Uh, mm-hmm. that's what we, for, that's what we make yogurt and uh, sauerkraut. And yeah. It's, it's a food. Yeah. We make a lot of food out of it with it. All right, guys. Well, I want to thank you both for being on here. Uh, like Kevin said, he has a group called Sous Vide Food and Fun on Facebook. And Lloyd is uh, also um, an admin for that group. And also, they're both in my group as well, Fire and Water Cooking. And Lloyd has his blog, The Kosher Dosher. And I'm going to link to both of those, uh, both Kevin's group and Lloyd's blog in the description. Make sure you follow them. Uh, Lloyd's got a lot of different experiments, not just sous vide, but he does do a lot with sous vide, but he's got a lot of different uh, food experiments because, like you said, he loves to eat. And uh, If any of your listeners have any ideas for more experiments, run them by me. I, I love doing this stuff. Or questions, I'm more than happy to answer. Yeah, Lloyd's retired, so he has a lot of time on his hands. <laughs> I'm young. I'm young. I think I'm the oldest out of you three guys. Out of you two guys. So I'm the oldest. Not by much. And Kevin's got Kevin's Kevin's got a lot of knowledge as well, and uh, he's learning more. And uh, uh, he's actually you said you're going to be starting a uh, consulting business, right? For sous vide for restaurants. Yeah, I'm hoping to. I got to see it. It's tougher than I thought it would be, but I'll get there. Yeah, keep your nose to the grindstone. You'll get it. You uh, definitely have a lot of knowledge, and I want to thank both you guys for being on. And um, I will have you on again, I'm sure, in another point, and we'll have some more. Uh, things to discuss, but thanks Lloyd Capuccio and Kevin Little. I uh, appreciate you guys being on. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Good being with you guys. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I want to thank Lloyd Capuccio and Kevin Little one more time. Check out their links below. Plenty of sous vide information. Make sure you also follow us, the Fire and Water Cooking channel on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook. We have a group and a page. Fast growing. 
and make sure you like and subscribe and follow this podcast. I'll see you again on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast.